0: The Indian Mutiny or Sepoy Rebellion or First Indian War of Independence was the most critical challenge to British rule in India in the 19th century. It resulted in the loss of thousands of British and Indian lives. It saw savagery that rivals any modern conflict and saw the snuffing out of the last vestiges of the Mughal Empire, the end of the powerful East India Company and the establishment of the British Raj. It is an event that has shaped India, it shaped Britain and its idea of empire, and it continues to impact on the world today. The event goes by a variety of names. On the memorial to local soldiers in York, Minster, it's referred to both as a mutiny and a rebellion. Indian nationalists refer to it as the first war of independence. Whilst many in Britain have probably heard the term Indian mutiny, few can tell you what it means, nor what it means in India. Welcome to my first talk in a series on the Sepoy Mutiny in India in 1857-58. In this particular episode, we will explore why and how the rebellion broke out. I will follow up in the coming weeks with the war itself, the siege and storming of Delhi, the massacre at Kampur, the siege at Lucknow, and the Indian warrior queen, the Rani of Jansi. The Indian Mutiny, or Indian Sepoy Rebellion, resulted in 182 Victoria Crosses being awarded, And I'll tell you the stories of some of those recipients too. And now, the story of how the rebellion broke out. The British, through the East India Company, had been trading in India since the late 1600s. Over time, they'd moved from simply trading to establishing warehouses and forts to guard them, and then on to establishing their own army and navy, which, whilst staffed by British as well as Indians, was totally separate from the regular British Army and Royal Navy. In 1757, they had, under Robert Clive, won the Battle of Plassey, which in many ways moved them from a trading company to an imperial administrator. Their influence spread through India with victories over Mysore, the Maratha Confederation, the Sikh Empire, and the Gurkhas of Nepal, until in 1857, 100 years after Clive had won his famous victory, the East India Company directly ruled about two thirds of the Indian subcontinent, with the other third being run by various royal dynasties, but very much under the influence of the company. The rise of the East India Company is a fascinating and slightly confusing story in its own right, and one that I will tell on another occasion. Suffice to say that here we are in 1857 with a private company, allied to but independent of the British government, exercising control over an area well over ten times the landmass of the United Kingdom, The directly ruled areas were divided into three presidencies, which were totally separate to each other. In the south, or southeast, was Madras, to the west was Bombay, and in the north was the most important, Bengal. And it's in Bengal that our story centres. Whilst independent of the British government, the East India Company nevertheless relied on their support. Hence, alongside their 300,000 army of local Indian sepoys and 40,000 British soldiers, there were also some regular British regiments in India, probably numbering less than 10,000 though. If you read school history books, they will often lay the whole war at the feet of a new, brand new cartridge that the British tried to introduce to their troops. But the cartridge was more of a pretext for the revolt than the fundamental reason for it. And so before I go on, I just want to take a little moment... To explain the background as to what was going on in India at this time. As you may have gathered from some of my other stories, history is not straightforward. It's made by humans, and us humans are complex creatures. We make decisions, right or wrong, for a variety of reasons. Not always compatible, not always logical. Now, there was certainly discontent amongst the sepoys in the army, although not initially regarding the new cartridges. For a start, there was a growing resentment that pay was not keeping up with the times. Indeed, the sepoys still received exactly the same pay as they had at the turn of the century, meaning that their purchasing power, as well as their social standing, was declining. Added to that, the lack of promotion opportunities meant that many felt stuck in their careers. Reason for resentment, maybe, but mutiny? Now lad, in that loss of status. Many members of the Bengal army came from the former independent kingdom of Awadh in the centre of Bengal. In 1856, the East India Company annexed the kingdom, centred around the Lucknow area of India. And with that annexation, the privileges that the sepoys had once enjoyed were watered down. One Aud cavalryman lamented that previously he had returned home as a great man, but now the lowest members of his village would puff smoke in his face. People do the strangest things to meet their desire for status or honour, the world over. Compared to the armies of Madras and Bombay, the Bengal army recruited heavily from the higher castes in Hindu society, in particular the Brahmins or priestly caste. This resulted in the Bengal at sepoys having a very Hindu-centric view of their military life, which will play out in our story. But even before the cartridge crisis, the Brahmins in particular had growing concerns about the way that their military fortunes were evolving. And these fears were mirrored in wider Indian society. For instance, the growing British or East India Company empire in northern India had led to the recruitment of more Muslims and Sikhs into the army. Some Hindus saw this as watering down the Hindu nature of the army and their own influence. In 1856, the General Service Enlistment Act decreed that henceforth, troops recruited in Bengal were expected to fight overseas in places like Burma and China. This would entail travelling by ship, on which the religious Hindus would not be able to set up their own campfires and cook their own meals, according to religious custom. For a Hindu, this was basically a sin. Now, whilst the company assured the sepoys that this would only apply to new recruits, many were not so sure. This suspicion was an indication of how far trust had broken down between the sepoys and the British authorities, including their own officers. So we had an army that was growing increasingly distrustful of the authorities. And finally, there was religion. Originally, the East India Company had not had much time for religions that got in the way of their trade. However, by the 1830s, an evangelical Christian wave was sweeping through Britain. Figureheads, including William Wilberforce, who is chiefly remembered for the ending of slavery in the British Empire, saw social justice as part of their Christian faith. In the same way that this Christian social justice had inspired them to campaign against slavery, they saw it as their Christian mission to raise the Indians out of, as they saw it, poverty and neglect. Under enormous pressure from the British government, the East India Company finally allowed missionaries into India. The missionaries persuaded the government to adopt laws that would, in their eyes, liberate the people from their old religions, such as banning the Act of Suthi. The people of India, the vast majority of whom had their own long-established religions, were alarmed. As the 19th century progressed, English language schools were established and local legal codes were changed to the British system. Everywhere they looked, Indians, if they chose to, could see the Anglicisation of the subcontinent. And many wished for a return to the old trusted ways. And it wasn't just the sepoys. Feudal nobility longed for the days when they had wielded their own independent power without any interference from the East India Company. The adopted son of the last Maratha ruler, Saab, was a case in point. As the adopted son, the East India Company refused to give him the pension that his father had received. The ouster king of Ald, now stuck in a palace near Calcutta, was smarting from the British annexation of his kingdom. Indeed, many of his subjects sympathised with him. And remember, many of those subjects were sepoys in the Bengal army. Then there was the ageing Mughal Emperor, Banadur Shah, whose ancestors had ruled much of India, but who was now reduced to a palace in Delhi, a British pension, and the title of King of Delhi. And these nobles, along with others like the Rani of Jansi, will feature in future talks. And it wasn't just nobles who resented the British ascendancy. In a one of the biggest group of losers following the British annexation in 1856 were local agricultural landlords who lost control to peasants in British land reforms. The economic policies of the East India Company were causing resentment amongst many of the general population too. The weight of taxes, as in most tax systems, fell disproportionately on the peasants. Even the most basic commodities in this tropical country, such as salt, were controlled by a company monopoly. So, that's taken a little while, but I wanted to explain the complexities of what was going on in India in the 1850s. Because you can see there were many, and not just in the army, who longed for change and actively participated in the armed rising in 1857. It never was simply sepoys on the rampage. Maybe you can also understand why some Indians refer to this revolt not as the India Mutiny or Sepoy Rebellion, but as the first war of Indian independence. Now, you might disagree, but then history is all about perspectives. One person's hero is another person's villain. And maybe you can also question just how important the greased cartridges were in this situation. As I said earlier, people were looking for a cause to galvanise resistance to the British And it also then begs the question whether the sepoys thought of the rising or whether other members of Indian society were influencing them. Rather like the Russian Revolution, who was leading and who was following? Or put another way, those alienated feudal nobles and landlords would have found it very hard rising without the sepoys' assistance. Which brings us to those new cartridges which were introduced to India in late 1856. By January 1857, rumours began to circulate in the army that the cartridges had been greased in animal tallow. More importantly, the fat of cows, sacred to Hindus, and pigs, untouchable to Muslims. Now, whether that was actually true is a matter for conjecture, although inquiries by the East India Company officials couldn't discount it at the time. The procedure for opening a cartridge from its packet was to tear the paper seal with your teeth. In other words, Your mouth would come into contact with the fat from either a cow or a pig. Sepoys were horrified. Not only was this a sin, but once more they saw it as an attempt to undermine their religions and convert all of India to Christianity. Mystery fires started to break out in barracks. Flaming arrows were fired into the thatch of officers' bungalows. The telegraph station at Barakpur was burned to the ground, and the British commanding officer at the local garrison warned the Governor-General that outsiders were trying to cause trouble inside the army. And then something altogether strange happened. Throughout Bengal, chapatis, small round flatbreads, started to be passed from village to village. No one seemed to know exactly what it meant, but traditionally it was a sign of a momentous change afoot. What momentous change? No one seemed to know. Some believed on the 100th anniversary of Clive's victory at Plessy, 1857, something was going to happen to the British. Others, confusingly, thought maybe the chapatis had been sent by the British, but for what reason, they didn't know. But as the months passed in 1857, there was a growing expectation that something huge was about to happen. And it was. It would tear northern India apart and cost thousands upon thousands of lives. Despite these signs that trouble was brewing, the British authorities seemed to be taking a blasé attitude. Whilst there had been mutinies in the Sepoy army before, There hadn't been one for 30 years. Quite frankly, the sepoys had fought loads of wars on behalf of the British and they could be trusted. No British reinforcements were sent for, despite the fact that in the whole of Bengal, an area the size of France and Germany combined, there were just four British infantry battalions. All that was needed was for their British officers to convince the sepoys that the rumours regarding the cartridges are false and everything would be fine. At the sizeable military base at Barakpur, the garrison commander, General John Hearsay, tried to allay the sepoys' fears. Aged 66, Hirsi had spent his whole adult life serving in the East India Company's army. Having seen active service in both the Third Maratha War and the Second Sikh War, he was respected by his men. Now on the 9th of February 1857, he addressed the men of the 34th Bengal Native Infantry in their own language assuring them that the cartridges were not being greased with the fat of animals that were either holy or offensive, tensions were allayed. Or rather, they were for the moment. If General Hearsay was sympathetic to his men's concerns, the commander of the 19th Bengal Native Infantry, based at Bahampur, 90 miles north of him, was not. Here, Colonel Mitchell was faced with a similar situation on the 27th of February. The 19th Bengal Native Infantry was predominantly Hindu. Nearly half its members were from the priestly Brahman caste. They too shared the story that the cartridges had been greased in cow fat and wouldn't accept them. But rather than the sympathy, Colonel Mitchell decided to tough it out. He threatened to send them abroad to either Burma or India if they didn't take the cartridges. In the ensuing standoff, Mitchell had lost his nerve and backed down. But the die had been cast. Any respect that his men had previously had for him evaporated. Moreover, his bombastic approach seemed to confirm to the men of the 19th that they had been right about the cartridges all along, as his only argument was to threaten them. A month later, the authorities finally decided to deal with the defiant 19th Bengals. They were ordered to march the 90 miles to Barakpur, where they'd be disbanded. To ensure that this disciplinary didn't get out of hand, the authorities ordered the British 87th Regiment of Foot, later the 1st Battalion, Royal Irish Fusiliers, to return from Burma to Barrackpore. The arrival of the British 87th Regiment might have been a good insurance policy for the East India Company, but it didn't help the situation at Barrackpore. Here, General Hirsi's men of the 34th Bengal Native Infantry feared that having dealt with the 19th, these white troops might be turned on them for their reluctance to use the new cartridges. The 19th duly arrived at Barakpur and were disbanded, but the event had made an impact on their comrades in the 34th Bengals. Whilst they respected the general, they were aware that unlike them, whilst they respected the general, they were aware that unlike them, their comrades in the 19th had taken a moral come religious stand that they had failed to do. On the afternoon of the 29th of March, General Hearsay was relaxing on the veranda of his bungalow when a message arrived urging him to come immediately to the parade ground. Earlier that afternoon, 29-year-old sepoy Mangal Pandi of the 34th Bengals had rushed out of his barracks, armed with a musket and sword, shouting to his compatriots to rise up against the British and defend their culture. Men gathered on the parade ground, unsure what to do. Some believed he was intoxicated, which may have been true. When British Sergeant Major James Hewson arrived to see what was going on, Pandy took a shot at him, but missed. Armed with only a sword, Hewson dived for cover as Pandy reloaded. At that moment, an officer, Lieutenant Henry Bow, rode up. Pandy took a shot at him too. He missed the officer, but hit the horse. Lieutenant Bow jumped clear as his horse collapsed under him, and, drawing his sword, he ran towards Pandy. All the while, the throng of men from the 34th watched the unfolding events, neither joining the lone mutineer nor trying to disarm him. The officer advancing on Mangal Pandey was joined by Sergeant Major Hewson. With no time to reload, Pandey drew his sword and managed to strike both men. As they struggled with the sepoy, both men were each hit on the head by a rifle butt, wielded from behind. In other words, some of Pandey's comrades had come to his assistance. Other sepoys pulled the two British away from the fight, either to protect Pandey or to protect them. No one knows. It was at this moment that General Hirsi rode up. He ordered the Indian commander of the guard, Rishwari Prasad, to arrest Pandey. Using the excuse that he was not armed, whereas Pandey was, he refused. Hearsay realised that with the NCO in charge of the guard refusing to cooperate, two British soldiers with slash wounds and the men of the 34th milling around, he would have to settle matters himself. Hearsay spurred his horse towards the mutinous sepoy. Pandy had now managed to reload his musket and raised it towards the general. And then he turned it on himself and fired. Amazingly, the suicide shot merely wounded him in the chest, and here, he, together with a Muslim sepoy, wrestled him to the ground. A week later, both Pandy and the commander of the guard who had refused to arrest him were court martialed. Both men were found guilty and hanged. In death, Pandi became a martyr. Remember Mangal Pandi became a rallying cry during the coming Sepoy rebellion. Within two weeks of the Mangal Pandi incident, the 34th Bengal Native Infantry were also disbanded. That decisive action had two unintended consequences. Firstly, a whole regiment of men who were trained to fight were now roaming the countryside with a serious grudge against the British. Secondly, other Sepoys in the Bengal army. Felt that the men of the 34th had been harshly treated. What had been a localised event in Barakpur was starting to snowball. Events now moved 900 miles to the northwest. The military base at Meerut, close to Delhi, was 900 miles northwest of Barakpur. Even today, it would take over 24 hours to travel between the two locations by car, which shows just how big British Bengal actually was. By the standards at the time, Meerut was one of the nicer military bases to be posted to in India. Stationed here were the East India Company troops of the 11th and 20th Bengal Native Infantry and the 3rd Light Cavalry. Alongside them were an almost equal number of regular British troops from the 60th Rifles and the 6th Dragoon Guards. This ratio of almost equal numbers was rare in India, where Indian troops significantly outnumbered British troops across the subcontinent. Of all the places that the sepoys could choose to rise up, Meerut was therefore one of the least likely. Which makes what happened next all the more incredible. Following the insubordination of the 19th and 34th regiments, the East India Company had tried to smooth the waters. In early April 1857, a new procedure for loading the rifles was proposed. The sepoys would not be required to tear the cartridge paper with their teeth, but could use their left hand. Furthermore, the cartridges would no longer arrive in Greece and the sepoys could make their own grease using oil and wax. However, this compromise immediately hit the buffers. Rumours started to abound that now the paper was made from animal products, so even tearing it by hand was unclean. Interestingly, while the British authorities refuted this claim, many sepoys believed the story to be true. Also interestingly, the fact that the rumours moved neatly from the cartridges to the paper could indicate that the whole cause was being engineered and whipped up by those who wanted the sepoys to rebel. Nevertheless, with the new procedure approved, the commanding officer of the 3rd Bengal Light Cavalry at Meerut decided to put it into practice. Lieutenant Colonel George Carmichael Smythe ordered 90 sharpshooters from his cavalry unit to attend firing drill on the 24th of April. When the new cartridges were issued, 85 of the 90 men refused to touch them. Mangalpandi's stand and that of the 19th far away near Calcutta was gaining momentum. Carmichael Smythe ordered their immediate arrest. The court-martial of the 85 men took place on Saturday the 9th of May, 1857. The day, according to young officer Hugh Gough, had an air of foreboding. It was dark with clouds and a hot wind blew across the parade ground, where the entire garrison of 4,000 troops, both Indian and British, were lined up, forming three sides of a square. Standing in the fourth side of the square were the 85 arrested men. The Indian troops present had, as a precaution, not been issued with weapons. The British, on the other hand, were armed with the very Enfield rifles that had sparked the whole cartridge furore. As the 85 arrested sharpshooters were marched into position, the British menacingly pointed their rifles at the rest of the Indian garrison. As the Indians uneasily looked across the square at the British, they would have noticed gaps in the British ranks. And in those gaps stood artillery pieces, pointing directly at them too. The court-martial lasted over two hours. All 85 were found guilty, and all, bar the 11 youngest, were sentenced to 10 years' imprisonment with hard labour. The youngsters getting half that punishment. For men who had served and fought for the British East India Company for so many years, one of the men was approaching 40 years' service, this was both harsh and arguably disproportionate. Soldiers who wouldn't see their families for ten years if ever wept and beseeched the British officers to have mercy. None was given. They were shackled, had their tunics ripped off and then they were marched to the jail past the remaining sepoys on the parade ground. And As they passed, they berated their comrades for just standing there and many of those men openly wept, possibly in sadness at the injustice but maybe in frustration at being able to do nothing with those rifles and cannon facing them. That night, many of the sepoys went into town, where they were once more berated by the townsfolk, even the prostitutes, for feigning to stand up for their comrades and their culture. Meanwhile, that same night, an Indian officer went to the bungalow of British officer Lieutenant Hugh Gough. I have to tell the story about Guff and his family, but that will have to wait for another time. On this occasion, Guff was told by the Indian officer who refused to move out of the shadows outside the building that something was afoot for the following day. Alarmed, Guff immediately went to his commanding officer, Carmichael Smythe. The man who had moved with such haste to implement the new cartridge procedure, which had led to the emotional court martial, dismissed Guff's concerns. Not willing to take no for an answer, the lieutenant then went to the garrison commander, Brigadier Archdale Wilson. But once again, his intelligence was dismissed. Sunday the 10th of May 1857 dawned, and it seemed that young Guff had overreacted. Whilst sullen, the Indian troops showed no sign of misbehaviour. Likewise, there was no rising in the town. Off-duty British troops spent the afternoon in the bazaar, and whilst the atmosphere was tense, the afternoon passed off without incident. Meanwhile, officers and their families prepared to attend a church service in the evening. Suddenly, at around 5pm, a rumour spread through the bazaar that British troops were on their way to disarm and disband the Bengali regiments. Sepoys sped back to the barracks to warn their comrades of the impending British attack. A member of the 3rd Light Cavalry, where Lieutenant Guff was an officer, rode from their barracks to the 20th Bengal Native Infantry to pass on the warning. The Sepoys, now joined by a mob from the town, broke into the armoury and seized weapons to defend themselves. The Indian Mutiny, or Sepoy Rebellion, or First Indian War of Independence, had started. Meanwhile, the British, who in theory were on their way to attack the Sepoys, were blissfully unaware of anything out of the ordinary. But not for long. Down in the town, as buildings burned, mobs set upon any Europeans they could find. Moving to the Indian barracks, they joined the Sepoys, hunting down British officers and civilians alike. That night, 41 Europeans were killed, half of them civilians, including eight children. Indians who tried to conceal fleeing British were also murdered. In a viciousness that was to mark the Sepoy Rebellion from both sides, 23-year-old pregnant wife of a British officer in one of the native units, Mrs Chambers, was hacked to death and her baby cut out of her womb and placed next to her body by a local butcher. Mr and Mrs Dawson were at home recovering from smallpox when a mob arrived at their house. Mr Dawson ventured out onto the veranda and fired a shot to force them back. He was immediately shot by several Sepoys. Rather than touch Mrs Dawson and possibly catch smallpox, the mob killed her by setting her dress on fire. Whilst this mayhem was engulfing the town and the Indian garrison, the sepoys marched on the jail and released their 85 comrades. I said earlier that the garrison at Meerut contained roughly equal numbers of Indian sepoys and British troops. It was not beyond the realms of possibility that the British could have reasserted some sort of control that night. But in the darkness, confusion reigned. A confusion not helped by shocked senior officers... Acting like rabbits in a car headlight, any opportunity to take on the rebels vanished as the mutineers, rather than heading toward the British garrison, chose to head instead towards Delhi, forty miles to the southwest. Delhi, the old capital of the Mughal Empire, and where the last emperor, the octogenarian Bahadur Shah, still resided. By the early hours of the morning, members of the Third Light Cavalry were arriving outside his palace at Delhi's old red fort. They shouted their support for the emperor and a restoration of the old regime. From behind locked doors, the aging emperor listened to their shouts, but didn't for the moment endorse them. Whilst Bahudar Shah was not giving his support to the rebels, there were many in his court who had been waiting and praying for this day to come. Venturing out, they joined the growing number of troops arriving from Meerut, and local crowds also joined the sepoys. With virtually no British troops stationed in Delhi, the city was swiftly occupied by the rebels. British civilians and Indian Christians were attacked. The three regiments of the Bengal native infantry who were garrisoned in the city gave the rebels a mixed reception. Many joined them, but others quietly slipped away. The only part of the city held by the British was the arsenal, and even here it was by a group of nine officers who had no hope of holding out. In a huge explosion, they blew it sky-high, rather than letting the arsenal fall into rebel hands. Amazingly, some of the officers managed to survive the explosion and flee the city. Two miles outside Delhi, the rebels were able to seize the magazine, which was totally undefended, capturing 3,000 barrels of gunpowder in the process. Maybe he genuinely wanted to restore mogul fortunes and believed the rising would achieve his true restoration. Maybe he felt coerced by his courtiers and the armed sepoys. Maybe his head was fuddled from his partiality to opium. We'll never know. But now Bahandus Shah, the last Mughal emperor, gave his blessing to the rebellion. The old Mughal capital was in their hands. They'd captured 3,000 barrels of gunpowder and now the old emperor had given them his endorsement. The rebellion was gaining traction. Across northern India, other sepoys heard the news and started to rise. Meanwhile, The British, who had misread and mishandled the situation, were caught totally by surprise. The Chapattis had foretold momentous times. One hundred years after Robert Clive's victory in the Battle of Plessy, this was the moment for India to break free of British, or more particularly, the East India Company's rule. The Chapattis did indeed foretell momentous times. But maybe not quite how the rebel sepoys and others dreaming of independence thought. The next ten months would unleash a savage war across northern India, which would cost thousands of British and possibly hundreds of thousands of Indian lives. It would see a savagery that would be worthy of any modern war. Hope for a resurgent Mughal Empire would instead be snuffed out. But so too would the mighty East India Company. The Chapattis heralded, as Indians would call it, the Devil's Wind. Join me next time as the British strike back, laying siege to Delhi and then storming it in an orgy of violence. But until then, thanks for your support, keep well, and I'll see you very soon.